humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 169, and I went out to Redmond, Washington, and sat down with uh, Arik Cohen. And the fact that Arik even exists is statistically astronomical. He is the grandson of four individuals who survived the Holocaust. Uh, There's definitely a trigger warning for this episode. Uh, It gets very intense, but I encourage everyone to listen, of course. And for those of you with families and such, I mean, listen to this episode and then go back and listen with your kids, your siblings, um, family members, whatever, and your friends and talk about it. Talk about this experience um, that Arik's grandparents had. I think it's important to talk about it. Uh, He made a website, what-were-the-odds.com, and you can see pictures of his grandparents and see maps and uh, see the experience of what he talks about um, through pictures and a timeline. And so I really encourage you to check that out as well. There's also pictures of thank you cards that he gets from kids when he goes to talk at schools about this subject. And uh, those are really neat to see as well. Um, And of course, there'll be the link to that on heyhumanpodcast.com's webpage. So on the links page. Um, So definitely check that out. Yeah, there's a lot here. It was was intense. And uh, I kept it together pretty well during this conversation. And then after it was done, I, I hugged him goodbye and I walked to my car and got in my car, shut the door, and I just started sobbing. It's hard to wrap your head around this atrocity and all the atrocities that happen worldwide. Um, It's hard to wrap your head around the way human beings are willing to treat each other. And the Holocaust, of course, is this grand scale of how horrible human beings can teach can treat each other it's also a beautiful example of perseverance and the desire to stay alive the the ability to choose hope and to see freedom even in the worst of circumstances it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, and it's an important story to hear, four stories to hear. Um, I'm honored that Arik uh, said yes when I asked him to be on the show. And, uh, yeah, so that's that. Uh, just the usual stuff. Hey Human Podcast, of course, is on social media, um, on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me under Susan Ruthism all over social media. My website is susanruth.com. If you're an Amazon shopper, please do so through the Amazon portal on Hey Human's uh, website because it helps support Hey Human and keep it ad-free. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you. And yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Super helpful. That would be great. And yeah, let's uh, let's get into this. And thank you for listening. And uh, take care of each other. Here we go. 
Eric Cohen, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and actually, I'm glad to be here. We yeah. are in the on the Microsoft campus in yep. Redmond, Washington. My mind is blown already at this place. Yeah, it's a it's a little crazy here. Uh, we have uh, an awful lot of people uh, doing it, and uh, it's it's a fun place to come to work. Uh, it's an interesting. Uh, it, it's been an interesting ride here. Just trying to find this building was in and of itself a, a, a map crazy. Yeah, yeah there's a, there's a little bit of a challenge of figuring out which of the six entrances you can get into. Yeah, uh, and you're lucky that you didn't that we didn't schedule this on a Monday because uh, the new employee orientation happens in the next building over, and then you have no parking. I bet that's uh, fun to see though, like uh, college it, it, first day. Of college. Yeah, you see a, a, a whole train of. Uh, younger kids coming in, which yeah. is uh, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, we also had. Uh, luckily, you didn't get stuck in the largest underground parking garage <gasps> west of the Mississippi. For real? Uh, yeah. Uh, that which, if you go around the building, there's an entrance into it. It's five floors down with uh, subterranean yeah, parking. Yeah, it's like something like. 4,000 spots, 4,500 spots of parking. Is that where the mole people live? I, I don't know, but I, I know that every uh, once a week I go, where's my car? Oh, man. Yeah, it's like, did I park? Which floor did I park on? Yeah, so, I imagine we figure it out. that would be confusing. Well, this it's quite a campus. It's beautiful. It, it is. Yeah, it is. it's um, stunning. It's uh, it, I just want to walk up to everyone and say, what are you working on right now? Yeah, most people would be pretty happy to tell you, and yeah. uh, I think they, they enjoy it. So, yeah. yeah uh, Tuesdays in the summer, they have a farmer's market out here. It's it's ridiculous. The Microsoft farmers. Would uh, you like to buy my robot? Uh, no, it's 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 the it's the and local Redmond one. Yeah, it's like it's like hey, if I bring back the the pins, I get uh, the the things from the pints of uh, raspberries. I get a better deal next week. There so, you, you go. Know, yeah. This robot makes homebrew. Uh, yeah, I, I, I That's haven't the seen way that one here. Yeah, I'm it is. It, uh, it probably probably. <laughs> well, okay. So we are here because Kim. Uh, our, our mutual, yep. I, it's my brother's friends, but mm -hmm. I met uh, Kim and Scott Harlan at, uh, at a get-together mm -hmm. and saw the treehouse. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Holy moly. Uh, by the way, we have three treehouses here on campus, too. That really? Have conference rooms. We should have probably booked to do it in one of those. Oh, so but cool. Oh. It gets a little warm in the summer, though. This is this it's is quite nuts. the empire, for sure. But um, So Kim, uh, we were sitting around the little fire, and Kim said, tell me about your podcast. So I filled her in a little bit. And she said, you should talk to my friend, Erica. I mm -hmm. said, okay. So yeah. uh, she told me a little bit about your story. Mm -hmm. uh, one in 10 million, is that uh, what it was? Or four in 10 million? So for me, so uh, the story uh, started out, so uh, Kim actually was uh, the preschool teacher for a couple of my uh, sons. Okay. Um, and uh, I actually, I guess it's about uh, five years ago, uh, started volunteering at the local Holocaust Center for Humanity. Uh, and I tell the story of all four of my grandparents that are survivors. Um, and I work at Microsoft here. I'm a geek by, by nature. So I took a kind of geeky view of how it looks and said, hey, what, uh, you know, uh, people said it's really rare that all four of your grandparents were survivors. And uh, I couldn't. I, it never really crossed my mind that that was rare, right? I mean, I had four grandparents. I, that's a pretty normal thing. It happened to my brother. He had the same thing, right? It can't be that rare. Um, and so I went and started trying to do the math as I learned more about their stories. And for me, the big challenge was uh, they didn't talk about it. Uh, so they didn't talk about it with their kids. They didn't talk about it with their grandkids. Which uh, camps were they in? Uh, so uh, 
depends on which side. So on my mom's side, they never were in any of the camps. They were uh, in Lithuania. So they were in ghettos. That's where my grandparents met. In the uh, in uh, Yiddish, it's the Shabli ghetto. It's the Suali. I'll butcher the name in Lithuanian, but it's, uh, I think, Suali uh, ghetto there, which was the third largest ghetto in, um, in Lithuania. Uh, and they were in that ghetto for... Uh, just over two and a half years for my grandfather, or uh, close to three years and uh, three and a half years for my grandmother, and then they lived in the forest. Uh, they basically ran away and, uh, and uh, lived in forest and stuff for six months. Uh, on the other side, my grandparents on my uh, father's side were a, a more kind of traditional story that we would hear. Uh, so they are from the Transylvania area in Romania. When they were born, it was Hungary, now it's Romania. Um, and they were uh, sent to Auschwitz where they were separated. Uh, my grandmother uh, got sent to Stutthof after a while and was part of the death march out of there. Uh, my grandfather was sent to Buchenwald uh, and was, uh, we believe, working in a oil refinery there that was con constantly getting bombed. Uh, uh, so, and then they got uh, reunited uh, after the war as they each got kind of separated and, and back uh, back together that way. But so uh, my grandfather's story is actually, uh, it, it tracks very closely on major points with Elie Wiesel and Knight. So if you've ever read Knight, uh, Elie Wiesel, uh, uh, I guess Nobel Peace Prize winner, uh, and, and that was uh, younger than my grandfather, but he was processed in Auschwitz on the same day. Uh, and he was liberated at Buchenwald on the same day. So uh, don't know that they knew each other. Like I didn't find this out until, you know, 35, 35 years after my, no, yeah, 35 years after my grandfather passed away, so I never had a chance to ask him. Uh, but uh, it's, they were in similar, uh, similar spots. So some of the ways I've been trying to figure stuff out and trying to do the research and, and learn about it has been kind of reading about this, finding uh, sources here, finding sources there, and it's, uh, it's some, uh, it, it ends up that once you go, and I'm not sure that my stats professor would agree with the way I did the stats, but I've got a nice spreadsheet that shows uh, how it all comes down. Uh, it ends up being uh, about uh, one in 930 million uh, chance that all four of my grandparents survived. Wow, extraordinary. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna take this bit by bit because it's a lot of oh, yeah. information, obviously. Um, let's just start back at the ghetto. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that a lot of people know what that means, mm -hmm. so will you explain that? Well, I, it, it probably even makes sense to start even a little bit before that. Great. Uh, for, uh, so my grandfather, Arya, uh, I was named after him. Uh, and uh, uh, Arya is also uh, kind of my legal name, but I've, I've been going by Arik. Oh, Arik. Uh, See, I already uh, pronounced it wrong. Okay. I I, as Eric. I describe it, my mom and my wife pronounce it differently, so I respond to anything even... Arik. Yeah. That's much more beautiful uh, than... No uh, it, offense it, to all the Eriks in the no, world. No, it, it is not Eric, but uh, close enough that it can be pronounced in, uh, in Texas. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Arik. Yeah, That's so, really lovely, uh, though. Uh, so... Uh, he was from a small village uh, uh, called Saucony. Uh, it was Shukyan in Yiddish. So Yiddish is the language that uh, was primarily spoke, was spoken by the Jews in uh, a bunch of Eastern Europe. It was a mishmash of uh, German and Polish and Romanian, and they had been uh, 
pushed out of many different places, so they had kind of their own language. Hebrew wasn't a language that was spoken uh, at home. It was like Latin. It was a prayer language, and it was used at synagogue, but it wasn't used uh, uh, for day-to-day purposes. So my grandparents, uh, my father's parents, spoke Yiddish to each other, yeah. and when they got mad, it was... <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it, it's entertaining, it, uh, like, uh, but like I guess there's like Yiddish theater and stuff that's still going strong. Uh, in fact, m- maybe going to go see a Yiddish performance of Fiddler in the Roof in New York uh, that is supposed to be pretty good wow. uh, in a couple weeks. But uh, the so he was from a town called uh, Shukyan, uh, and it had about a thousand people uh, uh, before the war in 1940, uh, and. The, about half of the population was Jewish. Now, he was from uh, probably one of the wealthier families in town. Why? His family ran the lumber mill. Uh, so they, they had a fish pond, they had the house, they had the lumber mill. Uh, he had worked uh, before uh, taking over the family lumber mill. When his father passed away, he was working as a forester. So he had a lot of kind of outdoorsy uh, experience, which served him incredibly well uh, moving forward. Uh, but in uh, July of 1941, um, the, the, uh, the Germans basically rolled through Lithuania. Uh, and the, they came to the uh, folks in the village uh, on a Friday evening, uh, uh, the beginning of the Sabbath, so the beginning of kind of the rest uh, and, and that. Um, when no one's supposed to work, and the, kind of the ruling, count, the ruling council came to kind of the Jewish elders and said, we need you guys to come up with 50,000 rubles, otherwise we, we're supposed to send you out to these work camps, uh, and you have 24 hours. Uh, 50,000 rubles in 1941 uh, equates to about $800,000 today, roughly. Uh, somewhere between six and 900,000, depending on how you look at exchange rates and things like that. Uh, but so uh, there's about 150 families in town. So go come up, so go get 150 families who are in a uh, small farming village uh, in the middle of n- nowhere, in the middle of the forest in uh, Lithuania uh, to come up with 800 grand in 24 hours. Um, somehow they scraped up the stuff that, like they, uh, their jewelry, their silverware, uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, and we're able to kind of placate uh, people. Uh, the next, uh, the next morning, so that was they give it back, they give it over on, on Saturday. The n- next morning, on Sunday morning, everyone is greeted by uh, folks with uh, uh, Lithuanian folks with guns. Say, hey, gather your stuff and go to the synagogue, which is a wooden synagogue. Uh, it was considered one of the, it, it's, uh, it's one of the few things I've been able to find pictures of from before the war uh, of the wooden synagogue in Shukyan. I'd love to see those pictures. Uh, yeah, I will. I, I've got, yeah. uh, I've got, I've got a bunch of random material. Um, and um, they is, basically. I'm sorry. What is ticking? Is there a bomb in here? <laughs> do you hear that? I do hear the ticking. I don't know. Is that the, is that? Is, that the is it a clock? Or? What is I that? I wonder if it's the lights. They show up. They show up. They get basically sent to uh, the so wait, synagogue. Does, does that mean that the that the money that they gave was? They, they just, it was just basically they, a bribe. Yeah, but they took the money and they. They took the money and they said, and, "Yeah, no, oh yeah, oops, it. sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah. didn't mean that." Um, yeah. So uh, took them to the uh, synagogue, uh, and then they uh, later that day took them about three kilometers out of town to an abandoned farm. A farm where actually it was owned by some Jewish folks that were sent uh, to 
when the Russians were running uh, Lithuania in between, uh, had got sent to Siberia. So uh, it was an abandoned kind of uh, that. And there they basically pulled out all of the men, uh, all the women and children, uh, and put them inside kind of the farmhouse. Um, and the kind of the older kids and that as well. Uh, and then they pull, pulled out four men. Uh, one of them is my grandfather. Uh, and the person who had took over as Forrester had been trying to get him. Uh, it had been about three weeks since the Germans had rolled through uh, uh, Lithuania and said, hey, we hear that Jews probably aren't going to be allowed to own stuff and things like that. Why don't you sign over the lumber mill and the uh, fish pond and that to me, and I'll make sure your family gets taken care of. Um, my grandfather, I, my mom says I get some of my stubbornness from him. Um, he didn't do it. Um, but so he got pulled aside. Uh, a guy who was uh, a leather maker in the town that was doing some work for some of the Lithuanians, uh, a tanner, uh, was pulled aside. Two people that were building, uh, doing construction work on one of the uh, key Lithuanians in town, they got pulled aside. Uh, basically, who were the men that got pulled out? The ones that somebody wanted something from. Uh, they were locked in the house, um, and everybody else was basically out in the... So uh, there's about 500-ish, 550 uh, Jews living in Shukyan that were uh, all kind of gathered here. Uh, about 130 people go into the house. Uh, about, a, uh, about 400 are out in the kind of yard and that. Uh, they go to bed. The next morning they wake up. There's nobody in the yard. Uh, and my, grandfa my grandfather starts asking questions, what's going on. Um, and he's told that uh, they were sent off to some work camps. Uh, and a guy comes by who uh, wasn't a landowner, but he was someone who had a horse and cart. So it was uh, someone that my grandfather knew because he had used him to do a lot of deliveries from uh, lumber mill, right? And uh, he turned to him and, and the guy's crying, goes, I didn't know. He goes, what do you mean you didn't know? I didn't know. Uh, he gets from him the story that actually they weren't taken to uh, uh, out there. They were taken about another three miles out into the woods uh, where there was a pit that was dug and there's a mass grave of 400 people. Um, so the only reason my grandfather isn't at that point in that grave is because someone wanted something from him. Um, and the amazing thing for me on this was uh, I we knew that my uh, growing up, I knew that my grandfather survived from his village because um, every, just, just about everybody in the village was uh, killed in, a, in kind of one of these mass pits. Um, what I always understood was there's stories of people that uh, dove in as shots were going and then crawled out in the middle of the night and survived. And that's the story my mom told me. That's the story my mom thought she knew. Uh, when I started doing the research, I found out that in the 1950s, my grandfather did an interview that no one in the family knew about. Uh, that got uh, in uh, in Israel, uh, where they uh, where they went after the war. Uh, it got translated to Hebrew. Somebody else translated it to English. And about uh, 10, 15 years ago, somebody put that up on the web. So when I started doing research, all of a sudden I found an interview with my grandfather that wow. he tells the story. So my mom's like, I've been telling. Uh, my mom was a teacher for 40, 43 years. Uh, she's like, I've been telling the wrong story the entire time. Uh, and so it, it's also, it's fascinating for me as I go through this, how much stuff I've learned that I, uh, I got that, I, I found that at probably one o'clock in the morning here. 
it was three o'clock in the morning in Dallas when I called my mom uh, to let her know uh, that you know I found stuff from her father. Uh, it was a little bit better when I called my aunt in Israel because that uh, time uh, time shift. But it was kind of like, where did this come from, right? Like, mm. where did we get this information? Um, and how old is he at this moment? Uh, he is he is in his late twenties. So uh, he was born, I believe it's nineteen ten. Oh no, early thirties. So thirty one ish. Uh, 31, 32. I just, firstly, I think about that in, in your 20s. Imagine all of that happening around you and you're 20-something oh, uh, years old. It's 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 nearly, it's mind-boggling. It, it's incomprehensible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I take a look at it. I, I, I forget about at that age. I, I, I'm not sure what age it would be comprehensible. No, that, exactly. But, yeah, but, it, but especially at that. I, I yeah. Just, yeah, oh. no, it's, it, 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 um, it, it, it hits awfully close to home. Uh, they got sent at that point. Everyone who survived. So got the women, split. the children, the women, the children, the, the four. Uh, yeah, four men uh, got sent. God, can you to, imagine uh, the guilt that that survived uh, uh, well, in that moment, even. And they don't quite know what happened, right? They know what one guy told them happened. Sure. They don't. They, they don't really. The the kind of recurring um, understanding that I get out out of uh, hearing uh, survivors and uh, and hearing and researching the stories is no one could actually comprehend that something that catastrophic, that evil, that, that final could be happening. So even when they heard parts of it, it can't be real, right? Is, is kind of the, the general perspective that I think an awful lot of people had. Well, somebody must be exaggerating. No one could be that bad, right? Um, and it's an interesting... Uh, it, I look at things that happen in the world today, and I go, "How much of it do? It, 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 how, how much? Um, now we have much easier access to a lot more information that we doubt just as much." Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And also, the existence of a Hitler is not a new thing, nor will it. It has it repeated itself. Hitler killed a lot of people in a long amount of time comparatively to some... He, he, was, very, he was very efficient. He was efficient, but he had a lot of time to do it too, mm -hmm. right? And But there are, in other countries, you know, like the Bosnia, the killing fields, you know, like the the Chechnya, like all this stuff, they're the, getting, they're killing massive amounts of people in much shorter amounts uh, of time. Uh, genocide hasn't stopped. No. Right? Uh, uh, and uh, one of the things that, uh, as I've learned more about it, it takes about 30 years for the survivors of genocide to start talking about it, the, what happened at all, yeah. uh, on average. Uh, so only now are we starting to hear about the stuff that happened in the 80s and 90s, right? So Cambodia, Darfur, mm -hmm. uh, Bosnia. Yes. Um, and the stuff's uh, been going on. And, and, that's why I get nervous when our our president says uses words like vermin, mm -hmm. and it's very reflective of the language used in the 30s to start to start the campaigning of but, making a person subhuman. Yep. Uh, anytime you can separate people out, and especially you can separate people out and blame them for some of your uh, some of some of your problems. Right. Um, there is a uh, it, it is a tried and true political mm -hmm. uh, tactic. Uh, most of the time, not rising to levels of uh, atrocity, uh, just uh, just ridiculousness. And but uh, it, it it is a but it left, left unchecked 
terrifying results. All right, so he's 20-something, yeah. and now where are they? Yeah, so now he gets sent up to uh, basically a, a city on the border between Lithuania and, and uh, Latvia, a town called Zagreb. Uh, which is where they gathered a bunch of the zoos, and this is where uh, Jews uh, in the area. <laughs> Zeus. Zeus. That's a Freudian uh, slip. Yeah. It was uh, a zoo, I'm sure. Yeah, it was a zoo. Uh, there were uh, about uh, just over 3,000 people in this ghetto, and the ghetto is a enclosed area uh, where they basically forced you to live and work inside that enclosed area. In general, uh, they were incredibly crowded. Uh, they were uh, poor sanitation, poor food, poor everything. Take the people in that are living in a particular area and now enclose them and put and, and remove some of their rights. They need to have passes uh, uh, and uh, controls. The stars. Uh, uh, there they were. I believe they were wearing stars in Lithuania at the time. It was adopted at various different points in time in sure. different countries. Um, but uh, my grandfather, since he knew a bunch of forestry stuff and that, he, he got a job. Uh, that was outside the ghetto walls. So he uh, did, uh, uh, so he basically was able to get in and out of the ghetto. Um, and Zagre is famous also because um, the ghetto there, uh, there's stories that come out where, uh, and this is true in most of the ghettos, one of the big things that they were really trying to do was to uh, dehumanize the people that are inside the ghetto uh, and make them feel like they have absolutely no control. So uh, a famous st uh, a story that I, I don't know if it's famous. It's famous because I tell it. So now it's and now it's infamous, I guess. Um, is the chief rabbi uh, of uh, Zagre, so the highest religious figure in in the area, uh, was uh, basically forced to be at the gate uh, when they opened up the gates in the morning, and they basically, in order to kind of break down the the boundaries of the uh, of who's in charge and how things happen, uh, they would have people on their way out spit on them. They said, you have to spit on the rabbi. Um, and the first couple people refused. So they got shot and killed right there. Um, and what the rabbi say, spit on me, right? Like, that, that doesn't matter. Like, like, in the grand scheme of things, like, spit as much as you want, just survive. Uh, my grandfather, uh, I don't know that he was part of that, but he got he got the... Uh, him and some of the older uh, uh, boys from the uh, from the town and the surrounding area, and a, a couple of the other men, uh, they basically got jobs outside and they escaped and they went back to the forest outside Shukyan to try to find, figure out what had really happened. Uh, and now they still had uh, family and that that were back in the ghetto. Food was very scarce, so now they were going to their neighbors, right, the people that they'd lived by their entire lives, and telling the stories of how tough was, things were there. Uh, and they were getting care packages, and they basically were doing an underground, how do we send food and smuggle stuff back in? Now, it was very dangerous to smuggle stuff back in. If you got caught smuggling, you got shot. If you didn't smuggle stuff, you starved, right? So it was kind of like, there's, there, it's a no-win situation. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, the, some of the neighbors, who are the same people that were supporting the folks that kind of took the money, took them out of the house, took over their houses, right? By All supporting, that. you mean didn't do anything? Uh, uh, either didn't do or were part of the militias, yeah. right? Okay. Like, I, I, like I, I don't know what the exact sure. breakdown is, but uh, you don't move 500 people with 10, 
right? Yeah, although um, I think about, you know, that they came for the Jews, I said nothing. They came for the Catholics, I said nothing. They came for the yeah. gypsies, I said nothing. They came for the disabled, I said nothing. They came for me, there was no one left yep. to speak up so, for me. Uh, and and it, that is one of the messages that, uh, so, that we talk a lot about from the Holocaust Center uh, here, of what does it mean to be an upstander? What what do you do when you see someone uh, being marginalized, treated uh, marginalized? And that and in general, I go speak at uh, middle middle schools and high schools, um, and uh, there marginalized is somebody who got bullied at lunch, someone who's sitting on their own at lunch. It's it, it's not it it's not someone who necessarily was walked away at gunpoint, right? Sure. I mean, there there are many different layers and. It, and frankly, stopping it at the earlier stages is a heck of a lot easier. Uh, and what does it mean to be an upstander to stand up in those uh, situations? And uh, what are the things that you can do that can drive you to, to make that happen? Uh, and it's an uncomfortable spot. Uh, I mean, I, I'd like to say that I'm perfect at it, and uh, but by no means am I. Uh, I figured what I'm doing with kind of telling my grandparents' story and that is kind of probably my best way of trying to address some of it, but uh, it's it, it's a tough spot for everyone to be involved in. Um, and many times the people that stand up get uh, put into the exact same position as the people that were being marginalized. There are some and things it, worth dying for, I think. Uh, there are, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'd like to, I'd like to believe that I'd make the right decision if it was placed in front of me, but um, I haven't jumped in front of any bullets yet, mm. uh, which is also why I'm here talking to you. Um, but uh, so they were doing care packages back. Um, the local Catholic priest actually uh, came to them. There was uh, about uh, 10 of them uh, that were kind of doing this underground get uh, uh, stuff and he says you guys have been members of the community for a long time we know you we know your families this isn't right what's happening uh, why don't you convert and that way when the Germans come and say are there any Jews we can basically say there are none right um, and eight of the people there converted my grandfather uh, did not now he wasn't a particularly religious man from what I understand before the war definitely not after the war uh, but he was as I mentioned a little stubborn um, now uh, come uh, I, I believe it's uh, late October of 1941 now. So it's uh, about four months after the, uh, uh, it, uh, it's three months after the, uh, the village was basically, uh, all the people were uh, moved out. Uh, he, uh, the, uh, the ghetto in Zagre is actually liquidated. And by that, uh, they took all, I believe it's 3,200-ish uh, people that uh, uh, mostly uh, many women and children out into the main uh, town square and uh, Lithuanians and Ukrainians came out with automatic weapons from all the surrounding streets and gunned them down. Uh, the, the story afterwards is that the river Zagre ran red with blood for three days. Now, my grandfather's not in there because he had escaped out and was trying to send care packages back. They continue sending stuff. They don't know that that had happened. It's a distance of about 40 miles, so it's not massively far, but it's far enough that when you're kind of doing underground uh, uh, supplies, it's it's kind of getting passed from uh, place to place. So was your grandmother in that? Get, but they had no, my, my, no, my grandmother was in a different town, okay, uh, so it. they had not yet met. Okay, so my grandfather, uh, so uh, on November 1st, I believe it is, it's All Saints Day, uh, the Germans came into uh, Shukyan, to Saucony, 
came to uh, ask for any Jews. They said there, there are no Jews here. Uh, they came to the Catholic priest and said, who's the people who have recently converted? Uh, and shot and killed those eight people uh, who are buried in the Catholic cemetery in uh, Shukyan. Uh, and, and it took 60 years or so, uh, early 2000s, there's now a memorial plaque there uh, apologizing that they didn't do more to protect at that point. I'm not sure what else they could have done, but recognizing that. Now, uh, they had heard that the Germans were coming through and going kind of door to door searching for people. My, uh, my grandfather was uh, in uh, a farmer's uh, barn staying and heard dogs barking. Um, so he ran. Uh, and he ran uh, about 20 miles away uh, to uh, the biggest city around, which is a town called Siali or Shavli in, uh, uh, in, uh, in Yiddish. Uh, and that's the ghetto. He ends up at the ghetto walls. Uh, at this point, there are uh, three people from his village still alive. So this is uh, roughly four months after the war gets to Lithuania. And out of about 550 people, there are three people left alive. Um, and he gets a job. Uh, he runs into uh, a old family friend that uh, he knew from when he did the lump, uh, uh, kind of the lumber mill and the, uh, that. And that guy gets him a job again at a factory outside of the ghetto walls um, in uh, in uh, in Shavli. Did he infiltrate the ghetto that when he got there? Well, he got there. They were, they were letting Jews into the ghetto. Oh, that, yeah. uh, yeah. that, that, I like, wasn't it, sure it, there no. was like checkpointy things. I, it, I'm sure there was checkpointy things, uh, but uh, this was a much larger ghetto. Uh, there was uh, anywhere between. Uh, four and seven thousand people there at any point in time. Um, it was extremely, extremely cramped. Now, uh, Shavli is where my grandmother um, had settled after. Uh, so, my grandmother is the most educated of all my grandparents. She uh, was orphaned at the age of twelve. Her father actually passed away before she was born. Uh, she finished off her schooling and then went to teaching college. So, she became a teacher. Um, uh, she, uh, in 1934, uh, she was uh, about six years younger than my grandfather. So she was, I think, in her uh, mid-20s mid when all this came down. But she was in the big, big city. Uh, she was kind of nannying and teaching, uh, kindergarten, first grade. And I've got uh, pictures of her with her class because her sister, her older sister, had emigrated to Palestine, now Israel. Uh, so all the pictures I have there are pictures that she sent to her sister uh, before the war. Uh, so she was teaching there. Um, now, uh, she, uh, when they opened up the ghetto, it became illegal to have schools in the ghetto. Um, so uh, she's officially listed as a factory worker, um, uh, but uh, educated. Now, I've been able to find out about your information. In May of 1942, there was a census done in, um, in, uh, in Lithuania, uh, and there was a lot of consternation between the Jews of like, should we fill stuff out? Should we not? What, what's, what's going on? They decided to fill out the information. Uh, and uh, all those records survived of the, that. And um, the uh, Lithuanian Jewish Museum actually digita uh, uh, got here a book, which is actually the list of all the people in the ghetto, right? Wow. And the maps. And where they, where they were living, what, so it's got what their level of education, it's basically their census record, right? Sure. 
Um, and what is this book called? It's the it's the uh, Shelby Gutter's get a list of uh, prisoners, right? So, and it's got uh, information around. It's in uh, Lithuanian, in Russian, and in English. Hmm. Um, uh, I actually found out that it existed. Um, it's out of print. They're not printing anymore. I tried to find out whether that. I found someone who, when they did the original printing, sent out an email to to a listserv right back in the. Uh, I think it's like two thousand six. It's not 2007, like that people could pre-order, right? Um, and I was actually in uh, visiting family in Israel um, and uh, had found out about it. I had gotten, there was a copy at uh, UW here at the UW library at University of Washington uh, locally, which uh, I got my brother-in-law who was a graduate from there and had checkout privileges, the ability, he checked it out and I went and scanned all, you know, took pictures of all the pages that my grandparents were in um, and then wanted to get a copy uh, and I sent out like does anyone have an extra copy and somebody in New Jersey said I bought two uh, and he's like I was like I'll pay for shipping I'll pay he's like no problem so uh, now I have a copy um, but uh, it was incredibly crowded in there um, so uh, as an example I believe I, I should look it up because I've got when I do my talk I've got my little notes but um, I believe there's a hundred and nine people listed at the same address as my grandfather um, I, I did the math based on square they, footage of living just, space and that. They had 16 square feet of space per person. Uh, so it's basically, uh, the, when I show it to kids, uh, it's I hold my hands out and rotate. And that's about four feet by four feet. And not, 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 I'm not holding my hands out completely. I'm holding them at a 90 degree angle. That's four feet by four feet. That's 16 feet of square feet per person. So not enough, basically enough space for one person to almost lay down, right? Uh, and they were incredibly, incredibly hungry. So uh, there was rationing of food, uh, uh, a weekly portion of food, and this it always gets a, a gasp from uh, students because I bring a full a week's worth of food. It's 700 grams of black bread, which is, uh, so it's roughly 15 to 18 slices of bread. Um, it's uh, a cup of flour, uh, two thirds of a cup of beans, um, and four ounces of horse meat, um, and that's a week's worth of food. It averages out to about three hundred ish, three hundred and thirty calories a day. Uh, and not only they were, were they starving, but they dysentery, uh, lice, it, it, the dysentery, lice. It's, it's yeah, it's it, it's disease. It's a disease infested, and they're going off and doing hard labor, right? I mean, it's not like they were just. And now let's lay lay in bed all day. It right? says something too about the human desire of survival. That great book by Viktor Frankl yeah. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. is testament to that. Yeah, and uh, man's yeah, yeah. Uh, and I actually don't know if he's related. Uh, my uh, my my grandfather was working at the Frankl leather factory mm, in uh, I wonder in if that's, I, I don't know. He is a psychiatrist. Yeah, right? I don't know so if it. Uh, but I man's mean, search it, for meaning is the yeah, name of the book. Um, I have an and I highly recommend that read. It's tough, but it's a good read. Uh, but uh, so, she, so you're my grandparents met in the ghetto there. My grandmother was teaching. Um, it was illegal. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, the superintendent of schools for Shabli, his um, uh, diary survived. Uh, and he said it was some of the best, uh, most motivated students that they had. Uh, the way they, they hit it by basically moving classrooms around. Uh, they uh, hit it by having kids go to school naked. Um, that's not the dress code in any of the schools my kids go to right now. Um, 
they did it uh, that if they all paid attention, they got, uh, you know, before they got their bath on, uh, uh, before the Sabbath, before Friday night, they got uh, an extra slice of bread with jelly. So uh, uh, evidently when you are surviving on 300 calories a day, that's a great motivator to pay attention the rest of the time. Uh, it's but amazing to me the brain can even can even function yeah. in those situations. Yeah. So they were they met in the ghetto. My, uh, the family friend of my uh, father's uh, uh, Arye, uh, sorry, he, uh, Kalman Lurie, uh, his uh, he also knew my grandmother, so he introduced them. So they were kind of wait. I'm sorry, you're my grandfather Arye and my grandmother Masha. Uh, met in the ghetto. Uh, they were introduced this is by your mother. on my mom's side. Mother. This is where this is all got still it. my mom's side. Got now, it, got it. No. At, at I'm glad point, that you're doing it this uh, way. Yeah, cause... and it's it, it's interesting because uh, we're now talking uh, uh, late 1941, 1942. My father's side of the family hasn't been affected by anything yet, right? The, uh, the Germans have uh, the, the, the there there's no ghettos. There's no like it's it's almost kind of like two stories that sort of overlap but not the, the timelines don't so my uh my they meet in the ghetto um and my grandfather has again the past to go work outside the ghetto my grandmother does too because she's officially listed in the census as a factory worker uh she's not right she she was working as a teacher um and uh they they were this was a ghetto where they were again trying to dehumanize people they had things that they called actions uh and an action was uh, basically ask for volunteers. And sometimes those volunteers got extra stuff. And sometimes those volunteers got sent off to a different camp. And sometimes those volunteers just got shot and killed. So you never knew what was going to happen, right? So there were stories of, hey, we need 50 people. And they shot them so that they had room for another 50 people to bring in. Um, but uh, they had heard rumblings that on uh, no uh, November 5th, uh, 1940, uh, 1942, no, 1943, November 5th, 1943, uh, the, that there was going to be a big action. Like it kind of had come down through the, through the underground. They didn't know what was going to happen. And the rumblings was anybody who has a pass, as soon as they open the gates, uh, get out. Uh, my uh, grandfather and Kalman, so Arya and Kalman uh, left to go work in the uh, factory or go out into kind of the woods. Uh, my grandmother had a pass, and she said, no, no, my job is to stay with the kids, right? I'm, like, I'm, I'm a teacher. So the parents can go out. Uh, I, I will stay with those kids. Um, my, uh, Kalman, who ended up uh, being, uh, there's, uh, we, there's family you have, and there's family you choose. Uh, he's family we've chosen, uh, or was chosen. Uh, he, my grandfather passed away before my mom got married. He's the one who gave away my mom, right, mm -hmm. at the wedding. Um, but he... Uh, Kalman uh, actually got interviewed by his grandkids about it, and uh, the way he described it is, if there's a hell on earth, this was it. Uh, on November 5th, what they did is around 9 o'clock in the morning, they drove a set of uh, trucks into uh, the ghetto, and they said, hey, we need the kids. Right? Bring out the kids. So kind of the, the uh, Jewish mayor of the ghetto, like the, the head person in charge, had had, had a, uh, an infant toddler, uh, and he brought him out. Uh, and then they said, no, bring out uh, the rest of the kids. And they started gathering the kids. Um, and uh, by gathering the kids, first they gathered the ones that came and put them in the trucks. Um, they said they were going to move them uh, to, to a different place. Uh, and then they started going door to door. And the kids would be holding on uh, to their parents or be hiding. And they'd grab them and they'd 
take them. And if they wouldn't let go, they'd club them until they let go and then take them. Um, and uh, these are apartment buildings, so it's multi-story. Um, if they're on the third floor and they find a kid uh, and they've clubbed them and gotten them to let go, uh, they don't want to walk them all the way down, so they throw them out the window into the back of the truck. Right? So they, they gather uh, all the children. I, I think it's around 700-ish. Uh, and then all the, uh, a bunch of elderly, a bunch of disabled, uh, the mayor, the doctor, the superintendent of the schools, and they kind of gather all them together and they go off uh, and they all put them on a train to Auschwitz where they were all killed. Uh, now, my grandmother had kids basically ripped out of her hands. Um, and I mentioned that my grandmother was a teacher. Uh, that was the last day she was a teacher. Uh, for the rest of her life on November 5th, she'd shut the door and basically cry the entire day. Uh, she couldn't be around big groups of kids. Uh, I asked my mom, what did that mean when you came, to, like when there was like parent-teacher night at school? She goes, my mom came, she sat in the corner and cried. Uh, my grandmother would come visit us here in the States uh, and she never came to see me play soccer. I thought it was because I was a bad soccer player. I was. Um, but uh, no, it's just she could, she'd stay with my brother and she couldn't be around big groups of kids. Um, and it's the types of things that affect you not just in the moment, uh, but affect you for, for her for the next 60 years right? So uh, of her life. Um, it it was, was a factor. Uh, and she got another career afterwards as an accountant and uh, got, you know, worked, uh, did a bunch of different things, but like uh, she could never be around big groups of kids again. Um, my grandfather and Kalman, uh, basically they hid out in the forest. They came back a couple days later, they heard what had happened uh, and they basically escaped with my grandmother. Because uh, Kalman knew her. Kalman knew her, right? So he introduced them because uh, he, uh, he had been in the town since the ghetto had been formed and that. And, um, that uh, I actually don't know exactly how they met, um, but they uh, they basically escaped out into the forest and just lived off the land for the for so this is November of nineteen forty three, uh, so it's the start of winter in far Lithuania, uh, far north Lithuania. It is not a Burr. yeah, it is a cold area. They basically were living um, in a pigsty in a uh, charcoal uh, pit in somebody's barn in the woods. They would try to build a lean-to, but they'd wait for the lightning to strike so that when they cut, when they chopped stuff down, it wouldn't make too much noise. Uh, they were constantly on the move. Um, my grandfather uh, basically never slept. Uh, was always uh, he always had a go back till till the day he died. Like never know when he's going to have to go, right? So he had enough stuff that he could go live off the land. Um, his, um, he couldn't get woken up by an alarm clock because he'd freak out, right? He couldn't, uh, my mom, her sister, couldn't wake up my, uh, my grandfather. Like, uh, only my grandmother could. And it's like, leave, leave. no, it's okay. We're okay. And this is 30 years later, right? 35 years later. So huge kind of trauma that gets uh, impacted by this. Uh, and they basically survived in the forest for seven, eight months until June 1944, July 1944, when the Russians liberated Lithuania. Um, everyone who was uh, in ju late June of 1944, everyone who was still in the Shavli ghetto was sent in trains to uh, the Stutthof concentration camp. Um, which was uh, uh, in Poland, in far northern Poland. Uh, 
And my, uh, my grandparents, though, kind of got liberated. They got a little studio apartment in Shavli and tried to figure out how to get back to, uh, go to, they were trying to figure out how to get to Israel. Uh, they basically, at that point, though, uh, were constantly had uh, a living room full of orphans, basically, that they were helping take care of and, and whatnot. So they, their, their tragedy begins in June of 1941. It, in June of 1944, uh, July of 1944, they're liberated, and they're now in reasonable shape. Um, on the flip side, my grandparents on my uh, father's side, uh, their story overlaps in time, but is at a very kind of different chunk. So if your grandfather, your mother's father, hadn't had those forestry skills, those outdoor skills, they never would have made They never it. would have survived. No. If he didn't own the lumber mill, he would have been dead the first time around. Um, if, uh, if they had stayed in the ghetto, right, that day, who knows what would have happened. That's uh, and uh, when you look at, across the uh, thing, um, I've been able to find that uh, there, there, I think that there's over eight or 9,000 people that ended up going through the Shavli ghetto uh, from what I've been able to find as research, it's by no means definitive. Um, less than 550 people survived for after the war. Um, so uh, even just my grandmother who didn't, I mean, she was in the ghetto when it was formed. She was lived through all of that. like. Uh, did they have the tattoos? They did not have the tattoos. They never went. Uh, they, they were never in a concentration okay. camp, right? Okay. So, um, they, uh, my grand, like they, they survived in. So the ghettos, they didn't do that. They didn't do that, and they didn't do that in all the camps either. Uh, they did uh, even in the most famous camps of Auschwitz. Uh, my grandparents that went through on the other side, they didn't have the tattoos. It was later in the war; they were no longer tattooing. Uh, they were processing too many people. They couldn't do it fast enough. Um, so let's go to uh, dad's side. So dad's side. So uh, Emil and Eva, uh, my, uh, my grandfather is uh, the youngest of, uh, of uh, three. Uh, and he was sent off to boarding school first and that. And he met my, gra uh, met my grandmother because my grandmother's uh, family, was, my grandmother's father, my great-grandfather, uh, was an incredibly bad businessman. So this was before the war. Uh, he failed at general story, failed at farming, failed at like everything. Uh, and she came from a, a pretty religious family. So he met her when she came through the town where he was doing boarding school. Uh, and then when he finished up school and he had to do mandatory military service for Romania at the time, he ended up in Aradia, which was the town where my grandmother's uh, family uh, lived. So he uh, had heard they were distant cousins of some sort. Um, he knew that they were there, so he went uh, uh, looking up to get free meals, right? Like, hey, I can get a home-cooked meal when I'm, uh, when I'm uh, out here. Now, my grandmother, on one side, uh, Masha was the most educated, right? She went to uh, teaching college on my mom's side. Yeah. She was, uh, went to teaching, like, university teaching college was pretty darn rare in the 1930s for a woman uh, to be able to do. Uh, on the other side, my grandmother is the least educated. Uh, so she had a younger brother and older brother. They were from a religious family, so it was very important for the men to study the Torah and to be uh, appropriately religious study. So since my great-grandfather was really bad at um, actually helping to support the family, she dropped out in third grade uh, and started working as a seamstress. Uh, and she continued doing uh, work in alterations and that into her 
uh, late 70s in New York. Right, so she. Oh, did my that. grandmother, my father's mom, was a seamstress in yeah. New York. So yeah, so she was. Uh, Must be a Jewish woman well, thing. Well, <laughs> it, it, it was one of the skills that they picked yeah. up and they were able to do, and they could. It, there was always a demand for it, and yeah. even just to build your, to create your own clothes yeah. and, and stuff. And I don't think my grandmother Sylvia was was very educated. Either. Yeah, no, I think it was one of those where. Uh, and uh, the other thing is, uh, New York actually, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, when the Jews came in. Uh, when there was a bu bunch of immigration of Jews, one of the areas that they kind of clustered was in the garment industry yes. in New York. So she didn't ever get involved in the official industry. She came over uh, after my grandfather passed away and whatnot, but she kind of did side alterations and, and stuff uh, out of her apartment. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I mean, she you know did clothes for us and uh, clothes for herself and, and, and things like that. But uh, she was a very pretty lady. Uh, I have pictures of her from before the war and whatnot. And, uh, my grandfather was infatuated with her, uh, and he was uh, he was trying to woo her, uh, and and whatnot. Now uh, he finished up uh, his military service. He ended up uh, he was from a place uh, called uh, Suplac in Romania. Uh, it is about. Uh, 10 or 12 miles from Shigeshwara, which is where Count Vlad Dracul was born. So mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. Transylvania. It's truly Transylvania. Uh, I went back and visited it with my dad uh, for my dad's 65th birthday um, and, and whatnot, and we went around. Uh, and the house where he grew up is still there. Uh, the town still does not have um, running water, right? It has electricity now. Uh, but it's still all outhouses and that. Uh, you've heard of a one stoplight town. This one doesn't even have a stop sign, <laughs> right? Uh, I went back, I guess it's like eight years ago now, um, so in 2000, uh, 2010, and, uh, or 2011, uh, 2011, and uh, there were still almost as many horse and buggies around as there were cars, hmm. right? Uh, it's all subsistence farming and that. Now, my grandfather's family for the town ran the town bar out of their front room. So he was uh, basically going around and doing wine sales and beer sales and liquor sales to go gather stuff from all the to all the uh, local areas. So he was kind of uh, more moving around. Uh, so he ended up back in Aradia. Uh, they had heard things were uh, getting uh, kind of bad. So he ended up trying uh, there in May of 1944. Again, trying. Now they'd heard that things were really bad for single women. So he tried to. He had been trying to convince my grandmother to marry him for a while, but he didn't want like a big religion. He did. He wasn't from as religious a family, so he wanted. He didn't want to get involved in all that. Um, he actually get, is there in the beginning of May when they, May of 1944, May 5th, 1944, is when they create the ghetto in Oradia. Oradia is a town right on the border between Romania and Hungary. Uh, still, even today, still primarily Hungarian speaking there. Um, before World War One uh, ended, it was all part of Hungary, right? So it, uh, that... Um, so did she say yes to him, knowing that no? no. She, that she was continuously now. Uh, I, I get. Uh, I, I got story. So my grandmother actually. So after Schindler's List came out, there was a big effort to record as many of the stories as possible. It was a, uh, a project called the Shoah Project uh, that was sponsored uh, by Steven Spielberg and by uh, University of Southern California, uh, and she got interviewed for that. So that I actually have some firsthand knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's all in Hungarian. So I had to get it all translated. So my dad went through and translated as much of it as he could for me. Um, but uh, sh so sh uh, uh, she told a story of um, she was really not impressed when he was coming over to dinner 
um, at her family's house. And he had been already wooing her for a while, but he'd bring another girl with him. So, uh, yeah, he was he was a bit of a player, from my understanding. He was a really good. My mom, uh, uh, like he he was a very jovial guy. Uh, uh, he he died when I was about five years old, but um, uh, he was uh, he was always dancing, always always full of life. He was exactly what you would expect a, an alcohol salesman to to be able to do. Uh, but he got stuck in the ghetto. Uh, when the ghetto basically got closed off. So this is a much bigger uh, uh, city. So the city is about 100,000 people. Uh, over a third of the people are Jewish. Um, so they took a third of the people, put them in about 6% of the space. Right? Again, super, super crowded. Uh, and finally, she breaks down and says, fine, I'll marry you uh, while they're in the ghetto there. Uh, so they got married on May 20th, 1944 uh, in the ghetto in uh, in Oradia. Uh, and they got, uh, it, instead of having a small civil wedding, uh, they got a big religious wedding with everybody from the apartment buildings and that, about 300 people at the wedding, uh, big thing. But they received a great honor that the rabbi basically gave them th his office uh, as their honeymoon suite, right? Uh, and uh, we didn't know exactly what day uh, they got married, uh, but when I went through my grandmother's kind of uh, testimony when she did the, that, she said they got married and on the fourth day after they got married, the train started running out of Aradia. Uh, so uh, I've been able to find the records of when the train started running out of Aradia, which is on May 24th. Let them know what the trains uh, mean. So the trains is, uh, they started deporting people from Aradia uh, and they put them on these cattle cars uh, and they sent them to Auschwitz, uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau. Now, on May 27th is the day that my, the, the, my grandparents were sent. So they, my grandmother tells the story. So uh, one of these cars is about 25 feet long, about eight feet wide. So probably roughly the size of this room, maybe uh, uh, not quite as wide, I, uh, as wide as this conference table that we're doing it at here, maybe a little bit longer, maybe the length of the room. Uh, and, uh, they were on one that wasn't super crowded. It was only about 80 people in that space uh, with their belongings, right? So with their suitcases, with their stuff. Uh, so my grandmother's there, my grandfather's there, her parents are there, uh, one of her brothers is there. Her other brother was doing uh, military service in uh, Bucharest, so he was not there. Her aunts and uncles, like everyone from the surround, uh, from like the surrounding apartment, right? So all the, all the family and that were there. Uh, there's a bucket of water on one end, there's a bucket uh, to take care of your uh, business on the other end. Um, and they are basically crammed like this for two and a half days uh, on, a, on a train ride to uh, Auschwitz. They pull up in the middle of the night uh, and they get parked and uh, they, get, uh, they disembark the, the next morning. Um, and they are immediately separated into men go this way, women go that way. Um, my grandmother tells the story. so. Uh, she had uh, sewn special stuff into her uh, to hide stuff in her uh, in her uh, in her shirt and her jacket. Uh, they got stopped actually on the border with Austria, uh, and uh, guards came through and ripped and took any jewelry, took whatever they could find. So she had stuff. She was able to actually the stuff that was hidden still survived from that. Uh, but she gets to Auschwitz. Uh, she uh, she tells the story that she looks around uh, for her mom uh, and can't find her mom because her mom put on an extra, was like, oh no, I, they had heard rumblings that you only get to keep what you were, what you were wearing. So 
it's uh, it's May. It's actually pretty warm uh, uh, in May of 1944 in Poland at this point in time. Uh, but they put on extra layers because this is everything else is going to be taken away. Her, so her mom is putting on like an extra jacket. She gets separated from her. It's it's chaos, right? Eighty people are trying to get out of a cattle car. Um, she looks around, doesn't see her, so she gets put down the path of the. Uh, she's in uh, her mid twenties at the time. I think she's twenty three. So she, sorry, she was born. Yeah, twenty. Uh, yeah, right around, uh, right around twenty three, twenty four. It's the baby. Yeah, and uh, so she gets separated out. Um, all the older people been sent straight to the gas chambers. So the fact that my great grandmother put on an extra jacket is the reason I'm here. Anybody who wanted to stay, this was May of 1944. They didn't need that many slave laborers anymore. So anybody who wanted to stay with the adults that were going to the gas chambers got to stay. Um, that was the last time my grandmother saw her parents. Uh, that was the last time she saw her grand. I think her grandparents were on that. Uh, on, in the, that, so uh, she the sees, extra coat because because of because them. they got se they got separated. So she got sent down one line as opposed to going in the line with her mom. And her mom was her executed. mom went uh, her mom went straight to the gas chambers. Right. Uh, so which she didn't realize at the time, right? Like my grandmother didn't even realize what was that what, what exactly had happened there. Uh, my grandmother got sent to the Auschwitz one labor camp, which was a uh, labor camp for women uh, there. So she had her head head shaved, uh, hair shaved off, uh, given kind of prison garb, um, and given, uh, which I, I just found out uh, in, as far as kind of crazy random stories, uh, uh, Billy Joel's family uh, was uh, escaped right before the war, but they were uh, uh, manufacturers of uh, uniforms in that. And the factories of Billy Joel's family was used to build to do Ugh. all of the. Uh, um, they had they had commandeered they, 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 the, Nazis. They, they, the Nazis had commandeered and used that to build all of the uh, clothing uh, clothing for the inmates in Fuck. the concentration camps. Uh, so it, I just found that out a couple months ago, which mm -hmm. was kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so she got separated out there. She she had good shoes. So she got to keep her shoes, so that that was uh, considered something that was uh, uh, very important. And that my grandfather gets uh, separated out with the men. Uh, she he actually goes with my grandmother's younger brother, um, and they get off uh, sent to to their own processing and whatnot. Is that because they were young and strong? Uh, they they were they were in good shape, right? They were uh, of working age, so they can still be uh, used as slave labor, and that's uh, that's literally what they were being used for. Um, they get they got processed, and I have uh, the uh, the processing card of basically when they got processed in uh, in Auschwitz. I would love all these photographs. Yeah, so I'll, I'll send. I'll, I'll put them on all the yeah, social media so people. Yeah, can see I'll, this. I'll I'll pass uh, pass them along along with the sources of where I got them, uh, and all of that fun uh, not fun stuff, but stuff that I've got. Um, and the so uh, and this is the one where I also have Ellie Vizels. And it's processed on the same day uh, in, in Auschwitz. Now they were on different trains. They were coming from slightly different locations. Uh, he was from a different town in Transylvania than uh, my grandparents were from. Uh, but they got separated out. My grandmother at this point gets uh, spent some, about a month, uh, a, a couple months in Auschwitz in the labor camp, uh, and then in August gets sent to Stutthof, 
uh, which was, uh, so this is August of 1944. I mentioned earlier in June of 1944, everybody who was still alive in the Shavli ghetto had been sent to the Stutthof camp. Now the Stutthof camp did not have gas chambers. Uh, it was a camp where they killed you the old fashioned way. They just worked you to death. Again, very, very limited food. My grandmother's job was to basically uh, repair an airfield, which meant moving boulders by day. And then they'd get some rotten turnip soup at night if they did it. Uh, Stutthof uh, also had massive amounts of people died just from overworking them and not feeding them enough. Um, it was also one where uh, they didn't do as much of the medical experiments that happened in Auschwitz. Uh, but instead, there was a luxury item, uh, which was soap from the uh, fat from Jewish bodies that had passed away. So that was uh, the claim to fame of the Stutthof camp. Um, was to be able to sell soap made of the Jews' yeah. fat, the yeah. rendering. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, uh, uh. yeah. So she survived there uh, until January. Uh, uh, late January of 1945. Uh, so if you look at kind of maps of it, uh, Studhoff is not very far from Lithuania, right? So it's in far northern uh, Poland. Uh, the, the Russians had already liberated uh, Lithuania in that, that summer, right? Before my grandmother got there. So they were probably 100, 150 miles away. And they were making slow and steady progress off of their, I guess it's their Eastern, uh, the Germans' Eastern Front. Uh, in, uh, in January, uh, uh, late January, the Germans realized that uh, the camp was gonna get overrun. Uh, so they basically wanted to keep as much of the slave labor as they could. So they started uh, basically taking everyone and, and uh, they gave everyone a loaf of bread um, and, uh, and started marching them west. So this is, uh, one of the death marches. Uh, the term death march got coined as part of what happened in the Holocaust as part of World War II. Um, and my grandmother, again, so she claims that one of the reasons she survived is she had her shoes still, right? So she had a decent pair of shoes. To, uh, they didn't, uh, over 10,000 people started the death march. Uh, less than half survived the march. Uh, just over 50% uh, fatality on the march. Uh, they uh, they didn't waste bullets on you. Like it's the middle of the winter in far northern Poland. If you fell sick on the side, they left you. If you uh, if you tried to run off, fine, you'll freeze to death. Um, they didn't. If they got lucky, they got to sleep in a barn. Uh, normally, they just had to sleep out in the in the weather, uh, and the Germans would commandeer the farmhouses and the uh, and the barns and that for themselves. After about six weeks of this, uh, uh, so early March, um, my grandmother says, I just can't do it anymore, uh, and crawls into one of the barns and hides behind uh, hay bales. And the Germans don't try to gather people up. They're, they're trying to stay ahead of the Russians who are liberating right behind them. Uh, there's uh, eight Lithuanian men there. I don't know if any of them are from the Shavli ghetto, but there's a decent chance that there's some over, overlapping there. My grandmother is sick. Uh, very, very hungry, uh, just can't go And hasn't further. seen her husband. She, she, she hasn't seen her husband at this point in six months. She hasn't, she hasn't seen her parents. She, she hasn't doesn't, seen, know, she doesn't know what's going on. She, right. does, like, she has somebody that she survived with in Stutthof that she basically hides with at this point. Uh, and later the same day, the Russians liberate her. That's how close behind the Russians were at that point in time. She gets sent to like some medical camps and that. 
Um, and she gets, she doesn't know where to go, right? She doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, she starts, uh, they, the, they started using, after, uh, as the war ended and that, uh, the same train lines to send people back. Can you right? imagine having to get back on a freaking train? So she gets back on a train. Uh, oh she is actually uh, switching trains at Auschwitz because they run all the trains through, like the train tracks were set up to go that way, right? So that, uh, and she is in Auschwitz on the, uh, on the day that she finds out that the war ends. So on VE day. Um, and, uh, and then she continues on to Oradia, back to the same place where they were living beforehand. And she kind of just, this is, uh, uh, I believe it's uh, be beginning of April of 1945. So their entire story, her entire story, from when the ghetto got started and she's back in, uh, in back uh, living in Aradia is less than a year. Uh, on the other side, they were three years between ghettos and living in the forest and that. Um, and they were pretty much freed by the time. And she's 23, 24? Yeah, so she was. I, just, or, I yeah. keep saying yeah, this, but she, imagine what it, when I was 23, I tried to imagine who I was in that mind space and having to experience that mm -hmm. is insane. Yeah, so she was born in 1916, I believe it is. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of nuts. Um, so she's back. So the... she's back, doesn't know what happened. Uh, uh, she At this point, uh, she found out about the gas chambers and stuff in Auschwitz, so she knows that her parents are probably dead. Uh, she does not know what happened to her brother. She does not know what happened to her husband. Uh, so we switched gears now to what happened to, uh, to Emil. Uh, Emil was, uh, he didn't talk about what much about what happened. He told, my, uh, he told stories to my dad about a couple different things. Um, there's things that we know. We know he was sent to Auschwitz. I have records of that. I know he was liberated from Buchenwald. I have records of that. Um, he told stories about um, uh, doing synthetic oil. Uh, so uh, being forced to basically create uh, create gas, right? So there was a process that I found out when I started doing the research to turn coal into gas because uh, gas for the planes and for the tanks and that was hugely important. Uh, that and he also uh, claimed, hey, he figured out how to survive in the camps. He didn't know how to dodge bombs, so he was more scared about Allies bombing where he's working, uh, almost than how does he survive on little food and this and that. Now my. Uh, my great uncle, my grandmother's brother, credits him with keeping him alive. He was very religious. He was, I need to keep, uh, I need to keep kosher and that. My grandfather forced him to eat stuff, right? He forced him to do stuff. Uh, uh, and so the research I've been able to do is I was able to find that there was, uh, so I know my grandfather spent a bunch of time in Buchenwald, uh, officially in, in that. There was a satellite camp of Buchenwald that's called Lutzendorf, which was a petroleum facility. And that's one of the places uh, I was able to find the US Army records that that's one of the places where they did synthetic oil. So I don't know for sure that that's where he was working, but there's a decent chance of that. Um, and this is one of the things that I always find interesting when I talk uh, to kids uh, and tell my story is, here's the stuff I know that I have records of, and here's the stuff I don't know, right? Uh, and here's the stuff I'm making guesses. Um, and uh, it's an interesting thing of, uh, I just literally last week got more records. So I actually have the, I, I had 
one record that showed he was in Book of Mall, but I have another one now with like what were his belongings when he arrived there. And I have other records that I don't understand what they are. They, they came from the uh, International Tracking Service in Erlson, which is the, the biggest uh, repository of, where basically all of uh, the information from the Holocaust that all, any of the countries found, that, that it's the big uh, foundings there. Uh, when I did the research even two years ago, none of their stuff was online. In 2000, so sometime in 2019, they started putting stuff online. So I, I have my DNA test that I have up on 23andMe and mm. whatnot. Uh, and I got a, you get some smart matches and I, they said, oh, there's some new data. So I was able to find some new information actually this uh, last week, uh, uh, some, some new records of this. Uh, that's where I got actually my grandmother's record from Studhoff. I know that she told it was in Studhoff, but now I have the actual kind of prisoner record and what her number was there. Now, um, the Allies bombed a ton uh, Lutzendorf. Uh, I, I believe that when I've been able to do the researches, either 11 or 13 different bombing runs there. Um, so and your grandfather is not only trying to stay alive from starvation, but he's, he's they, 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 so yeah. Away. So they, at the beginning of the war, the petroleum facilities were basically completely run by the Germans. By the end of the war, it was 98% slave labor uh, because it was a heavy ally target. Uh, for the war effort, and which makes a lot of sense, uh, but it did not make it any easier. Um, the last uh, run there was on April 8th, uh, 1945. Uh, why that important? Because on April 11th, the U.S. Army uh, liberated Buchenwald. Uh, and there's some fi very famous photos there, of, uh, with including Elie Wiesel and that. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, I first got introduced to the Holocaust Center here in Seattle. Uh, when I guess it was uh, almost uh, almost 12 years ago, it'll be 12 years ago in February, when there's a local uh, uh, local gentleman named Leo Hymas. He passed away about three or four years ago, but he was one of the liberators of Buchenwald, uh, and he was doing a talk at uh, the Bellevue Public Library here, and it was the first time I think I left my daughter to go to like a like hey I'm you know I'm, I've got something that I need to go do. Uh, so I went to go hear the talk, and afterwards I went up to him uh, and said, well, one of the people that you liberated is my grandfather. Um, uh, years later, I, he was a speaker that went around uh, to schools and uh, places here. Uh, I uh, would see him at when we did the speaker's lunches and when we had kind of our annual um, uh, fundraiser. Uh, and uh, I got into the habit of letting him know between my great uncle and my grandfather, the two people that I know that were at Buchenwald that were liberated by him and, uh, and others. Uh, what does the family tree of number of people that now are alive uh, look like? And at last count, I think it was something like 86 of people that uh, were born because of, uh, just out of those two people, right? Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of crazy from that perspective. My, my grandfather, uh, gets liberated by the, uh, the Americans. Now, my great uncle is super sick and gets sent to uh, American uh, hospital, basically a, 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 a deportation a, a resettlement camp, uh, and gets uh, uh, medical aid and, and that and is nourished back to health there. My grandfather, on the other hand, steals a bike from the American army. Um, I believe the statute of limitations on that has passed. Um, <laughs> But he steals a bike and starts biking back. So now he has been 
uh, from May, uh, May 27th was when they were put on the train. Uh, April 11th is the day he's uh, liberated. And he doesn't uh, talk about Auschwitz at all, right? He, uh, didn't, he didn't, He didn't. Uh, not that I know of, right? Uh, uh, my dad doesn't remember any stories on it. My, uh, my, d don't know, don't know how much time he spent in Auschwitz. I don't know when he got to Buchenwald. It seems like it's relatively quick because he did a lot of, I mean, so all of this again under a year but uh, under a year of starvation hard labor slave labor he steals a bike and starts biking it's roughly 800 miles back to uh, Romania right to Aradia uh, he tells us he told the story of uh, uh, he gets to Vienna uh, his bike gets stolen from him so he steals another bike um, and then he uh, gets back to Aradia on May 20th 1945 uh, one year to the day after he married my grandmother um, and knocks on the door and is reunited with my grandmother. Um, and that's the first time she knew that he still survived, right? Um, now, uh, I, when I tell the story, I, I start out with a bunch of statistics for the kids. Uh, and one of the statistics I use, what's the odds that you win the Mega Millions, right? The, the jackpot. And there it's about 360 million. Uh, and I say I don't play the jackpot because I, I've won my, my lottery here. Uh, but uh, if I did, the numbers 5 and 20 are ones I'd pick. It's the, uh, five, uh, May 20th, 1944 is when my grandparents were married. May 20th, 1945 is when my grandparents were reunited. May 20th, 1946 is when my father was born. Um, and I'm hoping that no one tries the garage code for my parents' house, because <laughs> uh, I think I just gave it away. You know, I think about the idea of, um, God, what an emotional story. It's, uh, but, um, sorry. Oh, uh, no. I think about the idea of when you, when you see concrete, mm -hmm. and, and then every once in a while, there's a flower mm -hmm. that pops up through the concrete. And I think, yes, that is the will to live right there. And that's what I... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's the will, it's the luck, right? I mean, what happened, like, why did my great-grandmother put on a jacket? Uh, why, why was my grandfather so stubborn that he wasn't willing to convert, right? What, like, why did, it, and the more I learn, the more I find out, why did someone help out in this particular situation that they were able to get food mm. here or that? Mm. Uh, you just, I, I don't, there, there's a luck, there's will to, uh, will to survive. Like I, my level of complaining about traffic has gone way, way down after uh, <laughs> learning and, and researching as much of, the, uh, of my grandparents' story as I could. But it's, it's, it's a, it, it's a and, and that's, uh, so that's the stories of how each of them survived the war. Uh, they all ended up, so uh, my uh, grandparents on my mom's side uh, ended up actually uh, smuggling themselves like uh, as refugees to try to get to Israel. So they were crossing in the middle of the night through European countries, uh, where have we heard that recently, uh, bribing guards. My grand, um, they crossed the Alps into Italy uh, in uh, late 1945 uh, or early 1946, uh, actually at, uh, early mid 1946. Um, and my grandmother is rappelling right through the Alps, uh, four months, five months pregnant with my mom. Oh my God. <laughs> after all this. So my mom was born in a refugee camp in outside Milan in, in, in Italy. Uh, so uh, when I hear about stuff going on in refugee, uh, you know, 
people that are seeking asylum and people that uh, are running away. Well, I, I've got pictures of my mom in a hospital in, in a refugee camp there. Uh, one of the records I was actually just able to find last uh, last week was uh, the record from the UN um, relief agency that was running kind of those refugee camps for my grandparents. So, what languages do they speak? Where did they? Uh, where, where were they? Where, uh, that uh, and then. They have multiple spots where, hey, uh, you know, we checked in with them there, we checked in with them there, um, and then they're missing. And the reason they're missing is they actually got smuggled uh, into Palestine uh, before it was Palestine, uh, before, as, it was before, the, before it was Israel. Israel. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they were, since my grandfather was of kind of fighting age and my grandmother had knowledge of Hebrew, knowledge of stuff, because she knew from her sister, because they uh, traversed, and because she had a baby. So my grandmother's job when they got to Haifa, uh, a city in Israel where uh, they disembarked, is her job was to basically talk to the British customs person and prove that they were actually all people that were legally allowed to come in. They were all on fake paperwork. And just about nobody knew anything about it. They were all survivors. Uh, and her job was to kind of fake it with while my mom was in her, you know, 10 months old in her arms because nobody would be faking as, as the, that they're fighters and that with a baby uh, until they got it. So that's how they got to Israel. And then my uh, grandparents on the other side, they actually stayed in Romania uh, for. Uh, uh, Wait, I'm sorry. Go yeah. back to that. They yeah. were your. So your grandmother was, or I'm sorry, your your great aunt was trying to convince the no so my, my grandmother uh, my grandmother was basically she had uh, the lot, baby. She, she had the baby my mom in her arms uh, and she's trying to uh, talk to the customs guys of yeah and she's showing since she understands a little bit of the language she was the one that was speaking to the customs person and handing over all the paperwork while all the people that don't speak any of the language and can't sneaking by. and have no knowledge of Israel, they're all people coming back to Israel, right? Mm. She can talk and she can talk about this village or that because she knows some stuff from that uh, from from her sister. Uh, so she's kind of just she's being the smoke and mirrors. She's being the smoke and mirrors while everybody else kind of uh, goes through. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of crazy uh, from from that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so she she does all of that. Um, and um, they ended up settling in Israel, uh, in a town called Nariya, uh, in the north, a, a resort town. That's where I spent a bunch of summers growing up. It was great, three blocks from the beach. Uh, uh, I, had a, I had a great time with it. Uh, my other grandparents, they went back to uh, the Transylvania area, to Tirka Moorish, where, uh, where my father was born. Uh, my uh, my grandfather was, uh, this was now under communist rule, uh, and Ceausescu was basically a tyrant there. Uh, they got thrown, in, my grandfather got thrown in jail because they thought that uh, he was still doing kind of wine sales, uh, and he, that there were some relatives that had a lot of money that maybe if they threw him in jail, they'd come back mm -hmm. and bail him out. Um, my, my father was very sick uh, and that, um, as a little kid. Uh, he had an append uh, appendicitis, and when they had the, when they did the uh, appendectomy, they left like a sponge in there, so he got infected, and, like all kinds of stuff. Um, and they were trying to get with a, a bunch of their family tried to get to Palestine. They all got put in deportation camps in Cyprus, uh, uh, refugee camps in Cyprus, uh, and then until Israel was formed, they weren't able to get in. But my uh, grandparents were still in Romania, uh, and then they wanted to leave. Uh, but they weren't allowed out 
for about seven years. Uh, and there it's also a crazy story of how they were allowed out. Um, the, my grandparents, uh, uh, my father, they had an apartment that was basically right across the street from the pool, the, like the town uh, pool in, uh, in Tigramores. And they'd been asking to leave for, I think it's six, seven years at this point in time, and kept getting visa denied, visa denied, visa denied, visa denied. Uh, the chief of police, his son graduated high school. He was an avid swimmer, um, wanted, wanted an apartment of his own. He wanted to move out of his parents' house. Um, looked at the set of people that were asking to leave, saw that there was an apartment right, of, right across the street from the pool, said, I want that one, and they had 48 hours to leave. So again, it was pack up all their stuff, get on a train that went through Aradia to Vienna, they get stopped again at the border. Now my grandmother's having flashbacks, uh, but they get on a plane to Israel and uh, that my parents met in, in high school there. Unbelievable. So that's the story not, but, I But yeah, not it, unbelievable. Well, I, mean, I hate it, even using that word because I know that there are it, people it, out there that say, oh, this doesn't happen. And, you know, so it makes it crazy. It's incredible. It is incredible. Uh, it, it, it's incredible. Astronomical. Uh, it, it's, uh, and stories like this, uh, unfortunately continue to happen or fortunately continue to happen right in both from it's unfortunate that they have to happen it's fortunate that people still have the will and capability to survive uh, and be able to do things like that um, and I like to think that uh, when I go and tell the story um, kids study a little bit of it they read Dyer Van Frank or they read Knight um, what I can do is provide kind of a personal narrative around it and put real people, real faces, real stories uh, behind that. And um, we're getting to the point where, you know, 10 years from now, the number of survivors that will be able to go out and speak is, they're, they're dwindling, right? Sure. They're, the youngest of them are in their, uh, uh, are in their uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And those were the child survivors. Uh, there are very few that are continuing able to go speak, and uh, I'm for for the group that I work at, uh, volunteer with here. Uh, I was the first of the third generation to to go speak, so that told my grandparents stories. Uh, but I kind of view it as uh, that's my responsibility uh, and my honor uh, to to tell those stories, um, and I like to think that it makes a difference. I, I get some pretty neat cards from from students and, and that afterwards. That well, that and we have to repeat the stories because if we don't, if the stories get lost, history is on a continual loop, doomed to repeat itself. Mm -hmm. So the, these stories are imperative. They're, they're imperative. And um, uh, Elie Wiesel uh, actually has a uh, quote about why he tells the story um, and, and talks about it. And he says, because um, if you don't tell the stories, it would be akin to killing them a second time. Well said. How can people reach out to you if, if they want to talk to you? Through the Holocaust Center's uh, website uh, and that, uh, they can get people in contact. Uh, we offer, basically, I, I go out to speak. It's a completely volunteer thing. Uh, uh, schools don't have to pay to have people come in. They send out materials and books and artifacts and that uh, to schools all across the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and there are similar organizations around uh, around the United States and around the world. Yeah. So uh, it is, uh, it's crazy for me to think that, uh, so I do 
at Microsoft here, uh, I am a geek. I've gone and spoken at a bunch of developer conferences, uh, talking to other geeks, um, and uh, the realization that I've now got a presentation that I could probably be giving for the next 40 years uh, is kind of nuts. But um, even last week, I got new artifacts and new stuff that I need to put into the slide, so it'll be a different talk next time. And you'll teach your children, and they hopefully will carry on yep. the tradition. So uh, my daughter has heard me speak now a couple times, um, and she actually, we did a talk for kind of family and friends that had, they knew I did this, but had never heard it. Um, and we were driving home from it afterwards, and she said, do you think I'll be allowed to tell the talk afterwards? Uh, on the other hand, she's like, if you come talk at my school, I've heard it already. So I was like, oh, that's okay. But the okay. other kids have the, it. The other kids have it. Yeah. So. Arik, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. That's, wow. It's a crazy story. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review Hey Human Podcast on iTunes.